in the summer of 2016, 53-year-old Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park uh, when he disappeared. Park investigators found his body on June 9th, uh, 2016, where Murphy had fallen 500 feet uh, from Turkey Pen Peak after accidentally stepping into a crevice. But he wasn't just on any old hike. Um, No, Jeff Murphy was looking for a treasure box. He was looking for a treasure box of gold and jewels that um, were worth up to $2 million, buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by an eccentric millionaire named Forrest Finn. Maybe you read about this story. Finn, an art dealer and millionaire in his 80s, lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In his self-published memoir, uh, Finn included a poem that supposedly led, uh, leads to a treasure that he hid in the mountains somewhere. The ornate Romanesque box was to be a 10 by 10 Uh, 10 inches by 10 inches, weighing about 40 pounds when loaded. According to NPR's John Burnett, uh, who reported this in 2016, he said, Finn has only revealed that this treasure is hidden in the Rocky Mountains somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border (laughs) at an elevation of 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine. it was said it was not going to be in a graveyard, nor was it going to be near a structure. Murphy ended up being the fourth man to die while searching for that treasure. <laughs> We're all searching, aren't we? We're all searching for the treasure of true life and joy and love. And I got to tell you, Jesus Christ has promised that he is that treasure. Any other treasure will lead you astray. Our goal, uh, our, our church, uh, our church-wide theme for this next year is simply going to be stated, I, I state it this way, seek the Lord in 2024. Seek the Lord in 24. That's our goal. Family, church family, that's our goal. Um, For each one of us to seek the Lord in 2024, to seek more and more of the treasure that is Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, what I'm anxious to see in Christian believers is a beautiful paradox. I want to see in them the joy of finding God while at the same time they are blessedly pursuing him. I want to see in them the great joy of having God and yet always wanting him. Beautiful paradox. (laughs) That's our goal as a church family, to experience the great joy of having God and yet always pursuing him. Seek the Lord in 24. (laughs) So the question is, how do we accomplish that? 
Well, the place I think we need to begin um, is to understand, first of all, where God can be found. And I got to tell you, I got to give you a hint. It's not somewhere between Santa Fe in New Mexico and the Canadian border up in the Rocky Mountains, okay? It is in high and lofty places, but it's also among those who are lowly and contrite. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57 this morning. Isaiah 57, verse 15. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles. Um, we want you to get into the Word of God, but because we're preaching off of just one verse, I've gone ahead and put this on the screen this morning as well. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Look with me at this verse. Isaiah says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You look at that verse and it's very revealing, honestly. Um, it's not only an Old Testament <laughs> verse, but its truths are beautifully New Testament in scope and, and, and concept and ought to be a, a large part of the sense of our faith as we come to God through Jesus Christ. Maybe the key word, I think, in this uh, verse of Isaiah uh, 57, um, which I would suggest, if you have your Bibles, again, if you have your Bibles, I would suggest circling these two words. It's the two words, um, I dwell. I dwell. Um, the, the child asks the parent, um, Daddy, Mommy, where's God? Where does God live? And here, Isaiah is answering the child's question. He's answering our question this morning. When he speaks of God, he quotes God as saying, I dwell. I want you to notice here that when God says, um, I dwell, one of the things he's doing is he's revealing that he is alive. Our God is a person, <laughs> and he is alive today. When Becky and I uh, adopted our daughter, Hope, um, we had the privilege of traveling to China um, to have her delivered, in that sense, in our arms there. And one of the things we did there when we were in China, as we, um, you know, adjusting to, uh, to Hope, our daughter, and she's adjusting to us, was we, um, as tourists, went out and went to an active Buddhist temple, um, I was very curious what I would experience there, what I would see, what I would, what I would feel. Um, we saw, as we walked around, we saw some enormous, you know, idols. Um, and we watched as people would prostrate themselves before those idols, but with no real sense <laughs> that their God was alive. I also felt a sense of hopelessness. I remember experiencing that specifically. And after wandering around a little bit, I ended up taking, I remember this, I, I took our daughter Hope. I took her in my arms and um, I uh, went back out to the bus to wait uh, for our group, you know, to, to join us. 
And so it was just hope and I. And uh, I remember saying to her, looking at her specifically right in the face, and saying to her, Hope, I cannot wait. I cannot wait to introduce you to the one true living God. That's who we worship. Our God is a God who's alive. Our God is a God who dwells. But even more than that, he's a God whose dwelling place, listen, that we ought to know about. And Isaiah, quoting God in this prophetic revelation, he quotes him as being found in two places. I want to give uh, credit to Gordon McDonald um, as we begin because I found his um, message on this passage very instructive and he gave a simple outline. So I'm going to use his simple outline and some of his insights from his sermon um, as, we, as we go through this. Two basic locations where God can be found. There's the lofty places and also the lowly places. Okay? That's where God dwells. That's where he makes his presence known. And you know, as I thought about the significance of those two places, the lofty places and the lowly places, it occurred to me that many of us struggle with finding God in those two places. See, I don't think we have an appreciation of what it means to worship God in a lofty place. And frankly, I I, I think we don't appreciate the fact that God is also found in lowly places. Still, I think we find it much more convenient, much more to our liking, much more comfortable for us to find God in some kind of middle ground place, which is neither lofty nor lowly. Isaiah wants us to realize, first and foremost, that God dwells in a lofty place. In my translation, the ESV, it describes as as the one who is high and lifted up. It suggests that God is, um, in his majesty and and power, is that he's above us. Of course, in Isaiah's world, that was where the kings, (laughs) that's where they would sit. They would sit in in, in an elevated position above the level of everybody else. And Isaiah is deeply concerned that the people of his generation, that they get back on track on their understanding of God as being in this lofty position, the upward position where power and majesty is always seen. And if we break down um, Isaiah's comments here about the lofty places, you'll discover three things about uh, Isaiah's theology that he has about God. He says, first of all, that uh, uh, beginning in the early part there in verse 15, he says, our God is high and lifted up. And then he says, second, that he also uh, inhabits eternity. Our God inhabits eternity. And then third, our God is, his name is holy. Three, think about it, incredibly difficult concepts for my (laughs) finite mind to really, I mean, fully grasp. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I find it much more comfortable to bring God down to that middle ground place. 
Or to put it another way, we have taken him out of his lofty place, at least in our minds, because it's too difficult to imagine him being, well, up there. Again, Dr. A.W. Tozer, this time in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this, the church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This the church has, done deliber- has not done deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. Tozer goes on. He says, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is a cause of hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. And with our loss of the sense of the majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We've lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Some pretty mind-boggling observations, I think. God's majesty is so incredible that our finite minds, they just, they, they just can't contain it. <laughs> we must only bow in awe before it. And Isaiah says, our God dwells in high and lofty places. He says, get it straight, Jerusalem. Get it straight, first free. And then Isaiah goes on and he says, our God dwells in eternity. He's not bound by time. <laughs> That's pretty incredible. I mean, Isaiah has watched in his lifetime four kings come and go. Some of them die in miserable ways. But see, his God is above death. His God is above time, unlimited, unbounded uh, by those things. Our God dwells above time. He's a great God, high and lofty. And finally, he says... Our God is one whose name is holy. That word holy, um, it's a special word uh, for Isaiah. All the way through um, the 66 chapters of of, uh, Isaiah, he has referred to God as the holy one or um, the high and holy one. It's become, like many uh, commentators have, have said, it's become this kind of a, a prophetic signature of, of Isaiah. Why is it so important for Isaiah to say these things? And my suggestion is, do you, is be, because, you see, Isaiah, at the very beginning of his ministry, encountered, he had an encounter with a holy God. See, if you go back in your Bibles, you go back to the sixth chapter of Isaiah, he gives you his spiritual autobiography where he got his start. He starts by saying, in the, king, in the year King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord high and lifted up. <laughs> Catch that? Um, there's that high and lifted concept once again. He continues. He says, his train filled the temple and above him stood the seraphims, each with six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, and with two he flew. And what do they say? What do they sing? They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What an incredible hymn. So what does that word holy mean? I mean, I, I mean, how do you grasp that word holy? Well, try, try this, um, you know, um, idea. You know, imagine with me that uh, a little ant is, is crawling on the floor. And as you watch that little ant go by, do you, do you think that little ant um, can understand the difference between you um, and it? <laughs> Do you think it can comprehend anything more than the fact that the edge of your shoe is colossally larger than it is? <laughs> Do you suppose that that insect has any capacity to perceive the, the gap between that little nerve bundle in its head and the power of our ordinary human minds? And listen, even if your um, little brain contains at least the potential to compose literature or engineer skyscrapers or design a space shuttle or unravel the working of genes. What do you suppose is the capacity? What do you suppose is the capacity of the creator of this universe? See, God is to us, you and I, not as we are to that little bug, but as we are to one of the tiniest subatomic particles that make up that little ant. <laughs> On the scale from blind to puny to brilliant and powerful, there is small and there is great and there's greater, and then far beyond imagining, there's God. When we say that, that God is holy, we're saying that he stands apart from us, that, that he's different from us, completely different other than us in terms of intelligence, in terms of power. He is so absolutely perfect and unstained and untainted that we in our stained and tainted and tiny sense can't even imagine it, nor can we approach it. Listen, I, I know that that's just one analogy. There's a lot of other analogies of God's holiness. But maybe, maybe Isaiah, when Isaiah wrestled with this concept of a holy, lofty God, he, he's not only thinking in terms of an analogy. Maybe, maybe he was impressed, what was pressed upon him in terms of every place he looked around him in the power structures of his day, what he saw, what he experienced was the opposite of holiness. He saw, for example, the great King Uzziah, who reigned on that throne of Jerusalem for almost 50 years, who had incredible charisma in building up that city. I mean, everybody loved Uzziah until 
In the book of 2 Chronicles 26, it says, he grew proud to his destruction. And he walked into the temple and he presumed to grab the ceremonial instruments to approach the presence of God at the altar on his own. The Bible says at that moment when he presumed to do such a prideful thing, God struck him with leprosy. I wonder if in Isaiah's theology, when he thinks about the holiness of God, he thinks about the encounter in which Uzziah, the king, literally acts out the acts of unholiness. And he realizes that in that presumption that Uzziah had taken on uh, himself, what happens when an unholy man attempts to come into the presence of a holy God on his own right. And if I'm right in that observations, observation, then it occurs to me that there ought to be, in passages like this, a growing breeding of holy fear in my own spirit. For like Uzziah, I also, by instinct, am a prideful person. <laughs> and how often do I enter into the sanctuary? of worship and open the authoritative word of, of God and presume to walk into the, the presence of God as if it were my perfect right apart from his grace. Is it possible we've not given him his rightful due? Gordon MacDonald tells a story about Alfred Smith who was a governor of New York. He says, um, he was asked to make an appearance at a convention dinner. Um, Alfred Smith discovered that when he arrived at the convention banqueting hall that it was a predominantly out-of-state audience that he would be speaking to. They thought that Alfred Smith was kind of a, a fun joke and his insight into what they must have been thinking was verified when the Toastmaster gave the governor a flippant introduction, climaxed by the phrase, quote, and now, boys, I give you the great guy, Al Smith. <laughs> governor Smith was the last man in the world to insist on idle ceremony and empty formality. But on this occasion, the author says, he sensed an affront to his office and his heritage, and he made his point briefly and tersely. He said, gentlemen, when I was a little boy on the east side, my father took me to see a great civic parade. I held his hand tightly as battalion after battalion of marching infantry came by. I danced up and down to the martial music. And then suddenly my father stiffened. I almost felt a tingling pride thrill at his being. Swiftly, he said, son, take off your hat. The governor of New York is passing by. I took off my hat. And then Alfred Smith simply said, gentlemen, the governor of New York bids you good night. And he walked out the door. 
I wonder, are there some times when we might picture God as wanting to walk out on us because we want to meet him on that middle ground? Which is more comfortable for us. (laughs) We want to meet him on that middle ground rather than meet him enter into his presence, enter into his presence in the awe um, that his high and lofty majesty deserve. Have we made God too much of our friends so that he's no longer our God? Hmm. Listen, if we are to seek the Lord in 2024, can I remind us that our Everlasting God dwells in the most prominent place and his name is holy. Where does God dwell? Isaiah, he says he he dwells in high and lofty places, but the second part of this uh, verse disturbs me um, just about as much as the first part. (laughs) Remember I said I have this suspicion that there are large times in my own Christian experience where, where I want to meet God just you know on that safe middle of ground where, where I'm at home. That means I prefer not to see him up in that lofty places where his holiness is accentuated. But very frankly, I'm, I'm not too comfortable either in seeing God in lowly places. And it's just disturbing for me to read there the second half of verse 15 where he says, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit. That phrase, contrite and lowly spirit, is in the original language, it's describing someone who has been crushed. Crushed. <laughs> I think it's a very descriptive word. I mean, lowly and contrite, you know... I understand what they mean. Crushed. I feel that word. Because, see, see, I've been crushed sometimes. Physically and emotionally and, and spiritually. And I think it's very striking here that when Isaiah wrestles with this question, where will you find God? He not only says God can be found in this, those majestic places that inspire awe, but he can also be found among the crushed people. Who are the crushed? First and foremost, they are those who suddenly come to grips with the sinfulness of their own being. There are those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. Go back to Isaiah chapter 6. He says, I heard the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And smoke filled the temple. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. That's a very instructive statement. Because Isaiah is telling us that throughout his early life, he, they catch this, he had never really seen himself until he saw the glory of the majestic holy God. And when he came to grips with the incredible dimension of God, he was also immediately 
became crushed with the awareness of how low he really was in his own spiritual rebellion and distance from the one who had made him. Woe is me, he cries. What's that word woe mean? Literally, it has something to do with the idea of rejection. See, I think Isaiah is saying, when I saw who God is, I suddenly realized that according to his creation design and how he meant for men and women to really be, I have fallen short of the specs. I don't live up. I'm a man of unclean lips. And while I used to be somewhat happy with myself, I have become increasingly uncomfortable. I recognize my sin in response to the glory of the Lord. Thomas Aquinas, a medieval theologian, created one of the greatest intellectual achievements of Western civilization in his Summa Theologica. It's a, it's a massive work. 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, 10,000 objections. What uh, Thomas Aquinas tried to do was try to gather into one coherent whole all of truth. (laughs) What a great undertaking. Think about that. All of truth. Um, Anthropology and science and ethics and psychology and political theory and theology, all under God. On December 6th, 1273, Thomas Aquinas abruptly stopped his work. While celebrating Mass in the chapel of St. Thomas, he caught a glimpse of God. He caught a glimpse of eternity, and suddenly he knew that all his efforts to describe God fell so far short that he decided never to write again. When his secretary, Reginald, tried to encourage him to do more writing, Thomas Aquinas said, Reginald, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written seems as so much straw. (laughs) Firm in his resolve, he wrote not another word and died a year later. Is it too radical for me to suggest (laughs) that no worship experience has really been genuine if there's not an accompanying sense of contrition, of humility? That part of my experience of stepping, (laughs) of being in the presence of a holy God ought to be a new recalibration of the fact that I don't belong there apart from God's grace? That I am nothing unless I am bathed in his mercy. If it is not for the cross of Jesus Christ, I remain in a state of woe. And I must constantly understand that. And if I do not, I cannot depend upon the intimacy of God's presence. W.E. Sangster, the great Methodist preacher of years ago, As a young man struggling to find his place in ministry, he made this entry in his journal back in September 18th, 1930. Listen to what he wrote. I'm a minister of God, and yet my private life is a failure in these ways. I am irritable and easily put out. I'm impatient with my wife and my children. 
I'm deceitful in that I often express private annoyance when a caller is announced and simulate pleasure when I actually greet them. (laughs) From an examination of my heart, I conclude that most of my study has been crudely ambitious, that I wanted degrees and knowledge and praise rather than equipment for service. Even in my preaching, I fear that I'm more often wondering what people will think about me than what they think about my Lord and his word. I have long felt in a vague way that something was hindering the effectiveness of my ministry and I must conclude that something, that something is my failure in living the truly Christian life. No wonder W.E. Sanger was used to touch so many lives. He knew where God dwelt and he experienced his presence because he was willing to acknowledge see, his own sin and enter into that high and lofty presence and worship God as God is. Where can God be found? Friends, God can be found In high and lofty places, God can be found among the crushed. So this next year of 2024, as we begin this year, my question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to pursue God? Are you going to refuse to stay in that middle ground place where it might be easier, it might be uh, more comfortable But that's not a place that God can be found. To find God, you must not live in the middle of ground because God dwells in lofty and lowly places. Seek the Lord in 2024. How? Well, the best place to begin that search, (laughs) I believe, is in prayer. It's on our knees. It's calling out to him. It's listening to him. So here's my invitation to everyone. Here they're listening, uh, here in person, those also maybe online. My invitation is simply this. Join me and others for prayer this Wednesday evening on Zoom. Join us as we gather together in the throne room of God Almighty. Because I believe that as you practice prayer, you will find God. He can be found in those, found in those high and, and, and lofty places where we worship, and he can be found among the crushed people we pray for. <laughs> among the crushed who bow before him, in confession and, and grasp for his gift of, uh, gift of grace. In such places, you'll find your God, for that's where he dwells. That's where he dwells. I want to invite you to prayer, prepare your hearts for taking of communion this morning.